Good morning. Four devotions this morning. I, uh, I'm going to go to Psalms tw- uh, 65. It might be a little bit out of season. It seems like this psalm is, uh, especially near the end, leans a little towards harvest. But uh, that's kind of what I went with anyway, so here we are. <clears throat> starting, I'm just going to read the psalm to start with. Uh, psalm 65, starting verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains being guarded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. Your water, You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Uh, uh, just a couple of things in here that uh, I noticed. Um, in verse 1, it says, Praise is due to you. And another, I guess, another translation or another version of it uh, could say, praise waits for you in silence, O God in Zion. Uh, I think possibly this was, uh, Zion would have been their place of worship. And this psalm might have been written as like a preparation for a harvest festival. So this would be before the festival, praise waits for you in silence, I had to think, is that kind of like our church here before the service? An hour ago, it was silent here. There wasn't, there was no, nothing. Praise was waiting for God in silence. And it doesn't have to be limited to the church, but just thought that was a neat, neat thing there. Um, Verse four, blessed is the one you choose and bring near. That's us, uh, our Sunday school lesson, we've been going through Acts and talking about how God chose the Gentiles, which is also us, chooses us and brings us near. Um, verse, verses 5 and 6, uh, it talks about God Verse 6, the one who by his strength God established the mountains by his strength. Uh, Just had to think of, you know, what God making the mountains. And if you look at some of the biggest and best stuff man has made, man's made a, there's man-made buildings that are over 2,000 feet. I think the tallest one is 2,700 feet. 
I mean, you can, if you set that beside some of our little mountains, it might be taller than those mountains. Not, not by their height above sea level, but if you set it about the base of the mountain, yeah, it's a little taller, but it'll look like a toothpick beside it. I mean, it's nothing. And these are, these mountains that we have in Virginia are nothing compared to some other mountains that God made. Um, and I looked up some of the data on Old Rag Mountain. I like to hike that, and a lot of other people do too. I think the park says they, they estimate that they have around 100,000 visitors to Old Rag in a year. So this is just one of God's mountains that he made with his strength, and we flock to this mountain. I mean, and that's just one of them. There's a lot of other mountains out there. So... Uh, Going on to verse 7, God stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. Uh, have a cross-reference to Isaiah 17, verse 12, where it kind of right along those same lines goes into a little more depth. So I thought it interesting that God, the thought of God stilling the tumult of the peoples Isaiah 17, verse 12, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of mighty waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chase like chaff on the mountain before the wind, and whirling dust before the storm. Uh, we have zero control over the sea. We have, and here the psalmist and Isaiah is comparing the sea to the nations, the people. Um, we don't have any control over them either. I, it, sometimes I, it probably shouldn't. I think there's a, there's a time and a place to think about the, the uh, nations, but I think sometimes we focus on them a little too much. I, I hear people worrying maybe about the direction that nations are headed. Really, there's not, yeah, we can pray about it. It does us some good to think about it. But I, I like how the psalmist focuses on God's creation here. The, the focus isn't on the nations. The nations is just, that's one little thing to God. Um, and I, think, I like to think that that's something that we can just leave in God's hands and focus more on the, the stuff where we can make a difference on person-to-person -person, uh, relationships, stuff like that. Verse 8, so those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. I think sometimes those that dwell at the end of the earth are more in awe of God's signs than those of us who think we're in the middle of the earth. Uh, this was written by David, this psalm. So I think the Israelites were, I don't, I don't think we were that much different from them, and they're a pretty good example of forgetting about God uh, on a very regular basis. They, you read about every man doing what was right in his own eyes, and uh, yeah, it's, so let's be like those who dwell at the ends of the earth and are in awe at God's signs. Then the last 
several verses here talks about God watering the earth, God bringing a lot of produce out of it. Um, one thing I guess I'd never really noticed before, this version talks about uh, there in verse 11, you crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance, gives you the idea of a wagon that's so loaded down that there's produce and crops falling off the side of the wagon as you're trying to haul it back home. Uh, I was reminded, the last bit of that reminded me of a song in the Mennonite hymnal number 521. If you could turn there. I don't know how familiar this is. I thought we'd try to sing a verse of it, and if it goes well, we can continue. Uh, if it doesn't, then we'll just hang it up. Uh, that's a good song. I think, how many are familiar with We Plow the Fields and Scatter? Yeah, we can do it. I did not bring my pitch pipe, so Daryl, if I could get, uh, it goes pretty high. Let's just, let's drop it down and sing unison most of the time, like a A flat. Good morning and welcome, each one of you. I want to take this opportunity to Say thank you to George Richards and to Simon Schrock for just, I was sitting here thinking about how much, what an impression these men, the profound impact they have had on my life. I was just a little boy. Um, we attended, my parents were attending Peabody Street uh, Mennonite Church in D.C. until I was about seven. So I was just a little guy, very young. But uh, remember well, George, your preaching, and, and just want to say thank you for allowing the Lord to, to work through you, and then following that through Simon. So thank you for, for that. <clears throat> I've been looking at the life of Joseph, and uh, it's hard to believe for me, it doesn't seem like it's been this often, but this is actually number seven. Um, the book of Genesis begins with the first two chapters establishing the fact that Almighty God is the creator of the universe. The rest of the book demonstrates God's faithfulness in the lives of people. The life of Joseph is given a larger portion of Genesis than any other. It's chapters 37 through 50. This morning I intend to conclude looking at Joseph's life by doing an overview of the last five chapters of Genesis. And no, I'm not going to read all five chapters. <laughs> you can relax. I do intend to, I want to pick out a few, read some passages within those, those five chapters. And I want to focus this morning on God's faithfulness and Jacob and Joseph's Response of faith. Picking up in Genesis, we ended 
last at the end of uh, Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to read the last verse there and the first verse of 46. Then Israel said, this is when he found out, when his sons come back from Egypt, tell him Joseph is still alive. He's for all these years thought Joseph is dead. He's been deceived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. I'm going to pause there. Why did Jacob stop in Beersheba and offer sacrifices? Why is this even mentioned? I think it's very important. Jacob has just found out that his son is alive. He's excited. He's eager to go and and see him. He's going to do this before he dies. Imagine what goes through Jacob's mind. He's leaving the promised land. This is the land God promised to his grandpa, to his dad, and then to Jacob. And Joseph wants him to bring everything he has and all his family, all his descendants leave what God said he was giving them. Should he go? He must have had doubts. Should he really move? Jacob must have remembered that God had appeared to his father Isaac at Beersheba when Isaac had planned to go to Egypt. And God had told Isaac not to go to Egypt. You find that in Genesis chapter 26. There God had told Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. Over 25 years before this, or at Beersheba, when Jacob was running from his angry brother Esau, God had reaffirmed his covenant with Jacob. And he had assured him that he would bring him back to Canaan, to the promised land. And so now here's Jacob in the promised land. He doesn't own anything, but or he owns very little of this, a cemetery. But here he is again, and I believe Jacob is very intentional as he heads south toward Egypt and stopping at Beersheba and seeking direction from God before he leaves the promised land. Jacob wanted to make sure he wasn't making a big mistake by moving all of his descendants out of the land that God had promised to them. And I think in seeking God's direction, before he left the promised land, Jacob was making his relationship with God a priority. He was putting his relationship with God above what he wanted to do, what he felt like doing. Let's hurry, let's get to my son. I can only imagine the feelings Jacob must have had about wanting to rush this 300-mile journey to get to his son who's alive. Jacob made his relationship with God a priority. In the next couple of verses, we see God's response. Starting in verse 2. Then God spoke to Israel in visions at the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. So he said, I am God the God of your father, 
Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, and his sons and his sons' sons, and his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt." And pause there again. I think if I seek God, if I seek, if I want God's direction, if I want to know His will for me, I believe He will be faithful to direct me. It may not be in something as obvious as a vision like Jacob had. But if I want to know what God wants me to do and I am committed to following Him, I believe God will. Show me. He will direct me. The next number of verses, verses uh, 8 through 27, give us a list of all Jacob's descendants. Every person who went with him. It names all the people who went to Egypt. There are 70. And I'm not going to read through the list of names. You know, to us, I think sometimes we can look at a list of names like this and it can feel pointless. However, it's not pointless. I think it's important for several reasons. Number one, it shows the faithfulness of God. This family started, you'll remember, with an elderly couple who is childless. A couple who believed God's promise that He would make them the parents of a great nation in spite of the fact that it's biologically impossible. They were beyond the age of having children. But they believed God. And God made it happen. And now they've gone from those two people. Now there are 70 descendants. God is in the process of fulfilling His promise, making them a great nation and blessing through them, blessing all the families of the earth. So this list of names, I think, to the Israelites was very important. And you remember Moses wrote Genesis, and his primary, his audience was the, the Exodus generation. They needed a reminder. Look where they came from, and look at the huge, the vast number of people coming out of Egypt now, 430 years later. So it shows the faithfulness of God. Second... The list of names shows that God cares about individual people. God knows you personally, and God cares about you personally. God thought it was worth having Moses list individual names. You matter to God. That's all I'm going to say about the list of names. I'll move down to verse 28. Just going to read three verses there, noticing where, where Joseph meets his father. So Jacob sends Judah ahead of him. Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph. 
to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, because you are still alive. Jacob is thrilled, and he's ready to go. He can't think what else could happen that's better. He's seen seen his son that he thought was dead. Can you imagine what this reunion was like after a separation of 22 years? 22 years of believing your child is dead. 22 years of Joseph longing to see his, his father again. I don't have time to dwell there. Um, the end of chapter 46. Joseph then preps his brothers. I'm not going to read those final verses of chapter 46, but Joseph is prepping his brothers to meet Pharaoh and what to say to him. And he doesn't tell them, each of you come up with the thing that's your strength and make sure you tell Pharaoh um, and even tell him how, what good citizens you would make in Egypt and how you know more than shepherding. You can do no. He told them to make sure and tell him, we are shepherds as our fathers before us. Just be real. Be who you are. And Joseph knew the Egyptians didn't like shepherds. Let's go to the first 12 verses of 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? occupation?" And they said to Pharaoh, are your servants our shepherds, both we and also our fathers? And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have the days have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with bread, according to the number of their families. Now, you and I have the advantage of having the Bible in our hands. We can look back and we can see what God was doing in moving His people, moving Joseph's family out of Canaan and into Egypt. 
In the land of Canaan, the Israelites were in danger of being assimilated into the culture around them. We saw that earlier with Judah. And they were in danger of being assimilated into a wicked, polytheistic culture. So God moves them to Egypt, also a wicked, polytheistic culture. However, in Egypt, Joseph arranged to have his family live in Goshen. Now, this was, this was the northeastern part of Egypt, and the bulk of the population was in the southern part of Egypt. The Egyptians were the best educated, most advanced society of that day, and they looked down on anyone who was not Egyptian. We are told in Genesis that Egyptians despised shepherds. They were loathsome to them. They didn't want anything to do with them. They wanted to be separated from them. Remember, they wouldn't eat with Joseph's brothers when they visited earlier because Egyptians won't eat with them. Because of racism, the Israelites were protected from the polytheistic Egyptian culture for a long time. While they had a chance to grow and they multiplied into a nation of people who believed in the one true God. It was God's way. It seems so backwards, but it was God's way of protecting His people and giving them a place to flourish and grow, develop a strong culture centered around the one true God. Then they were ready to be with other people. So God used even the Egyptians' ugly racism to strengthen His people. Just going to summarize the, the last part of the next part of uh, chapter 47, verses 13 to 26. In this, it tells us how Joseph faithfully continued on as, as the second in command of the land of Egypt and how he saved the lives of the Egyptians by providing food for them. He bought the land, the animals, and the people for Pharaoh. God used Joseph for good in the lives of the Egyptians. They recognized this in verse 25. They said, you have saved our lives. And in verse 26, we're told that during the time of Moses, over 350 years later, the 20% tax he had established was still in effect at that time. He made changes within Egypt that lasted far beyond his life. <clears throat> so God was at work for good in the lives of the Egyptians and the nations around them came and Joseph fed them. God at work through Joseph. In the last part of the last couple of verses of Genesis 47, I want to take note of the uh, time of Jacob when his, as his death was approaching. Picking up in verse 27 of chapter 47. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen. And they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Just an interesting side note here. So Jacob, after him and Joseph were reunited, he lives in, in Egypt 17 years. How long had he had Joseph before Joseph was sold into slavery? Thank you, Mary. 17 years. So he had Joseph from birth to 17 years, and now the last 17 years of Jacob's life. He again spends with Joseph. I just found that interesting. 
And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Jacob wanted his burial to be a testimony of his faith in God's promises. <clears throat> We're told in Hebrews 11, let me turn there quickly, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Also, um, I want to jump back to verse 13 in Hebrews chapter 11. It tells us these all died in faith. It's just listed Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. It says these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Jacob made a lot of mistakes in his life. But Jacob kept coming back and he's living by faith. He's learned to trust God and he's looking ahead and he wants to be buried in the land God promised to his grandfather, his dad, and to himself. And he wants his descendants to know that he wants to be buried there. He has them do it even though he personally wouldn't return to the promised land, he was certain God would bring his descendants back. I wonder, too, if there was a second reason that Jacob asked Joseph to bury him in Canaan. I can't prove this, but I wonder if did he intend it as a reminder to Joseph that the future of his family was not in Egypt. The future of his family is in the land God promised him. Even though they were, in, they were in Egypt 430 years. But that's not where their hope should be. Ultimately, it needed to be in the promises of God. In spite of, he wanted to remind Joseph, I think, that the future of his family was not in Egypt, in spite of Joseph's wealth and power in Egypt. Lesson for myself, whatever my circumstances are, whether easy or difficult, I need to look beyond my circumstances and place my faith in God's promises. Place my faith in God's word. God will keep his promises. I'm going to skip entirely over uh, Genesis chapter 48. There is a lot that could be said there, and I'm not going to simply for this lack of time. But in, in short, Joseph takes Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons, to see Jacob. They know that his, he, Jacob is sick, his time is short, he's going to die. 
Jacob adopts Joseph's sons as his own and says they will have an inheritance. Each of them will have an inheritance in the promised land, just like his son. They will, they will each have a tribe. And in verse 15, that's, I will read verse 15 of chapter 48. Um, just notice here, I'm noticing that Jacob, how he describes God. He wanted to, he, he tells them what God has been like. Verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and he said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, God who has fed me all of my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, and let my name be named upon them. He goes on with his blessing. But he describes God three different ways. It's the God of his fathers, the God of his ancestors. This is a, the God who's not limited to one generation, but throughout all generations. We heard Dave read this morning about God's faithfulness. It endures through all generations. Jacob saw that. Jacob also recognized that it was God who shepherded him or fed him all his life and redeemed him from evil. Jacob is saying this to Joseph and to his Joseph's sons, his grandsons. He wants his grandsons to know, to hear of his faith in God and who God is, what God has done for him. And then, in verse 21, Jacob gives Joseph the double portion of the firstborn. He, Jacob says to Joseph, in the presence of his grandsons who have never been to the promised land, that God will take their descendants back there. So he's stating his faith. He's giving them a vision for it. And if I can spot it. Verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying. But God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. God will be with you. I want to tell you, God will be with you. And God will do what he said. You can count on it, as Jacob did. I'm just going to summarize uh, Genesis 49, 1-28. Here, Jacob is dying, and he rallies enough strength that he, he blesses his sons. He prophesies concerning each of his sons in chapter 49. And it's amazing, if you look, I don't have the time this morning, but if you, if you look at these prophecies, and then you look forward a couple hundred years, and it's exactly, it's like he said it would be. God, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit and speaks, prophesies about each of his sons, about the, their descendants, the tribes that will come from them. Then toward the end of 49, in, in verse 29, he again, he wants to make sure that he is not buried in Egypt. He wants them to get this. Then he charged them and said to them, 
I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abram brought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. He wants to make certain they got this. It's important to him. This um, this was important to him, and this was a really big deal, not only to the children of Israel, but also to the Egyptians. Um, you'll notice in the first part of 50, uh, Joseph, go, Joseph falls on his father's face, it says, and wept over him and kissed him, and then he has his servants embalm his father, and he goes to Pharaoh and says, I promised my father I would bury him, and, and gets permission to do this. Well, Pharaoh sends a whole group of people. This, this was like a huge, a huge um, government, I guess, funeral. They mourned for 70 days. Let me pick up in verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh. Notice who all is going. All the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great gathering, is the summary. Uh, there was a lot of people. So this is after embalming him for 40 days and mourning him for 70 days. Then this big group goes with a military escort and they go to the land of Canaan. When they get just beyond the, uh, they stop just beyond the Jordan and they, they mourn there again for seven days. And the Canaanites in the area there took note. This was so unusual and it's such a large group and they're mourning so much, uh, they actually changed the name of the place. And from then on, it's known as the Meadow of the Egyptians. Or in some, some translations have it, the Morning of the Egyptians. I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, so, just one comment here. This could have been a time that Joseph might have thought, Hey, now's a convenient time. Let's go back to Canaan. I'll just stay there. But he didn't. And obviously he didn't plan to because they left their little ones and their animals in, in Egypt. Joseph was waiting on God's timing. He hadn't been directed by God to move back to Canaan yet. So they bury his father and they go back to Egypt to their responsibilities there. There's a 
short piece in Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. I want to read. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of your servants, of the servants of the God of your father. And Jacob, I'm sorry, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Here are the people, the men who sold him into slavery. He's told them, he has forgiven them. He showed them he's forgiven them. He's provided for them for 17 years now. But they are worried. Now that dad's gone, is he going to get revenge? And the men who sold him into slavery come back and fall on their face before him and say, we're your servants. They're ready to be his slaves for life. Joseph said to them, notice his response. Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is to this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly with them. I was struck that last phrase. He spoke kindly with them. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 37, we're, we're told that Joseph's brothers could not, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to them. But here's Joseph, again, committing himself to forgiveness. And he speaks kindly to them and comforts them. It's a work of God. Joseph saw God's hand in the circumstances of his life. He believed God was working for his good even when it didn't feel good. Even when his circumstances made it appear that God had forgotten him. Because of Joseph's faith in God, he could forgive those who had wronged him so terribly. Behind all the terrible things that happened earlier in Joseph's life, God was working for good not only for Joseph and for his family, his brothers, but also for the nations surrounding them. I want to tell you that God is bigger than anything you or I will ever face. What is God, what is God doing around us now that we are unaware of? What is God doing through a global pandemic? What kind of opportunities do we as a church have? How do we represent Jesus during a pandemic? God is at work in every generation. I want to read the last five verses of chapter 50. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. So Joseph lived another 54 years after his father died. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, and the children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, 
but God will surely visit you and will bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. In Hebrews 11, verse 22, it says, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. It was his faith, his belief that God would do what he said. God would act on his promises, even if it took 430 years, even if it wasn't in his lifetime, if he never saw it. He believed God would come through. Joseph followed his father's example and expressed his faith in God. It's so important for you and I to talk about our faith to our children. What do your children hear you speak about? Is it your fears? Or is it your faith? Your faith in God, who is over all who is working behind the scenes in everything. God's never out of control. At my Uncle Paul Petersham's funeral last month, the preacher was telling us about his last conversation with Paul over the phone. And he asked Paul, he said, Paul usually wanted to talk about things that were happening in the world. And he wasn't interested. He was focused on where he was headed. He wanted to talk about heaven. And he asked him, is he concerned? I'm not quoting him exactly, but is he concerned about his children and grandchildren with the way things are going in the world? And Paul's response was, not at all. God will provide for them. That's faith. He's not concerned about his descendants after he's gone because God can provide. God will be there, and they will have what's needed for life and godliness. That is the same type of faith Joseph expressed in verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and will bring you up to the land he promised. Joseph's embalmed body waited over 350 years to be taken to the promised land. And then it took the Israelites 40 years to get from Egypt to Canaan because of their rebellion and their unbelief. For 40 years, it strikes me that for 40 years, they carried around the bones of a man who believed God and asked that he believed God over 350 years before and asked them to carry his bones along because it's going to happen. And they're carrying his bones, but they didn't trust God. And it's easy for me to be hard on them. It's easy to criticize them. But how often, I ask myself and you, do we carry around the story of Joseph and so many others? We have the examples given to us of how faithful God is, how he works in the lives of people and he can be trusted. He will do what he says and how often. Do I lack faith 
in the living God. I'm slow to follow their example of faith. When I see how faithful God is, the only logical response is to place my faith in my all-powerful creator and redeemer who is all-knowing and everywhere present. I can trust him in my circumstances today and I can trust him for my eternal home. I, like Jacob and Joseph, need to place my faith in the fact that God will do what he said he would do. And I will act on what I believe. I repeat, I will act on what I believe. Ultimately, the book of Genesis is the story of God's faithfulness in the lives of people. Would you stand, please, and take your songs of faith and praise? Turn to number 560. Daryl, would you come up front, please, and 